grow in their faith as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of tonight's message is Anguish Over Sin. Anguish Over Sin. It's a little bit of clickbait in a sense because most of us wouldn't think about sin in that way. And in fact, we've to some extent been taught that we shouldn't think that way, that God has forgiven us of our sins, so we don't need to wallow in our sin, or we don't need to necessarily be focused on feeling bad about sin, but we need to be focused on the Savior. We need to be focused on our standing positionally as those who have been forgiven. But in Psalm 38, we're going to see this phrase about David being in anguish over his own personal sin. So we're going to take a look at that here tonight. Now, as I was thinking about sin... Although God has made it possible to experience practical victory over sin, and as I say that statement, God has made it possible for every believer to experience practical, I mean, as we go through our day-to-day lives, our experience of living life, as we go through that experience of living life, God has made it possible for us to have victory over sin. Now, some of you, maybe you've never heard that before, but that's a fixed fact, that God, through the power of His Spirit working in us, has given us victory over the law of sin and death. Now, apart from the Spirit of God working inside of us, and apart from the new nature indwelling us, apart from having been regenerated, the moment of salvation, but apart from having the divine resources, we would never have victory. But with those resources, with the new nature, with the Spirit of God working to transform our lives, to take us from what we were, which was dead in trespasses and sins, identified with the failure and the brokenness, the sinfulness of Adam. We're now been translated from that realm to the realm of light, the realm of life, a realm of victory. And so the bondage that we were into our sin nature, which was the only influence that we had in our lives prior to being indwelt with a new nature, given the new nature, before that, that's all we knew. But we're we're told at the moment of salvation that we're freed from that bondage. The, The chains that we were in are broken judicially. As God sees it, we're not in bondage any longer to our flesh, to our sin nature. We have the opportunity now to, instead of just constantly walking under the influence of the flesh, we have the opportunity when we're enjoying the Lord, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, having a vertical, heavenly, eternal mindset that when that's true, we're, we're told that we can have victory over sin. Not, not one day, not victory just over sin's penalty, which was judicially forgiven as Jesus Christ paid the debt we deserved, paid a debt we owed, and gave us a life that we don't deserve because of his work on our behalf. So judicially, God said, you're forgiven from the penalty of that sin, which was you were facing an eternity apart from me. Beyond that, we were given salvation from the power of sin to dictate and control our every move, our every life, our every decision, every facet of our lives. We were given victory from that. Now, that's practically available. It's available, but it's not automatic. You see, because we're still living in sin-cursed bodies with a sin nature, in a, in a world dominated by sin, in a world that is under the influence of the evil one, under the influence of Satan, we're still affected by sin. And it, in some ways, sin is an unavoidable part of life on this side of glory. Now, technically speaking, it's avoidable, but it's unavoidable in the sense that we are not glorified. We are not perfect. We are not always walking by means of the Spirit. We do not always have our gaze fixed on eternal things. We're distracted at times. We're deceived at times by self and by the world. So we don't always get it right, and it's unreasonable to think that we would necessarily. But the flip side of it is that it is possible. We have to live in light of that victory, and we also have to remember that sin is not something that should ever be desired, even if it is something that is, to a certain extent, unavoidable. You see, sin has devastating effects on our lives. It has devastating effects on the lives of those around us. And believers need to resist or avoid becoming desensitized to the danger or the harm of sin. Believers need to avoid becoming flippant about sin and just saying, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Is that true? Absolutely true. Is there forgiveness available judicially and relationally when we sin? The answer is absolutely yes, there is. 
But do we want to use or abuse the grace of God with this mindset that says, I'll just continue to sort of, not really even naively, but somewhat even intentionally, I'll just continue to do whatever my flesh wants, always sort of ahead of time falling back on the idea that, well, God will forgive that. And the truth is, He will. He has an infinite amount of forgiveness, but that is an abuse of grace. That is a misunderstanding of God's purpose for my life. To get in that mindset where when these ideas crop into my mind, brought about by the influences externally of the world around me or the influence of my sin nature in me to just say, you know what, I'm just going to resign myself to going along with that, knowing that I can always make it right with God by treating God's relational forgiveness as sort of a lucky rabbit's foot that I can just rub every time I go off, off the rails. I won't, even, I won't even reckon myself to be dead to sin. I won't, I, won't, I won't see myself as having an alternative. I won't ever present myself as a living sacrifice. I won't ever yield myself to the Lord so that he could give me victory over those things. I'll just go with whatever my flesh wants and then after the fact, I'll try to make it right with God again and I'll just have this constant ping-ponging effect in my life. And God says that doesn't have to be true. You see, when failure happens, the focus should be on restoration and healing. But then what? Restoration and healing accompanied by changed thinking and spiritual growth. Yes, it's absolutely true. Every time, each and every time I fail, God wants to restore me to a place of fellowship with him. Each and every time I fail, God wants to heal me in a sense of that, of that failure. But he also wants me to change my thinking, to learn from my mistakes, and to grow spiritually. You see, the believer need not practice defeatism, where we're just resigning ourselves to, I'll never have victory over this. You see, the Apostle Paul was in that place. If you read Romans chapter 7 carefully, you'll see that though he was a believer, the Apostle Paul was in a place where he found himself kind of defeated and saying, all the things I don't want to do, those are the things that I keep doing, and all the things I aspire to do instead, I never do those things. Well, that's a very sad place to be. And it can feel that way at times when we're seeking to have victory in our lives by our own power by our own strength, by our own self-will, by human effort. And so the Apostle Paul had to learn a very valuable and important lesson. He had to learn that the only way he would have victory over sin in his life was if he was doing so by appropriating the right power source, the power of the Spirit of God working in his life that was available to him. And that's why he says, for the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, lives inside of every believer of what? of life and godliness has made me free, given me freedom from the law of sin and death. I was in bondage, but I've been given freedom. It's accessed through the power of the Spirit of God working in my life. And that's why from Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and onward, the Holy Spirit is mentioned nearly repeatedly over and over and over again, whilst up to that point in the book of Romans is not mentioned as much at all. See, it's not about trying really hard to get it right. It's about seeing that the source of victory is my occupation with Jesus Christ and my trusting his spirit to be able to work in my life to give me victory. Now, if you've been around for a bit, nothing that I've said so far here tonight is really news to you. That This is something that we ought to know. But I think we have a habit of sort of finding certain areas of failure that we're prone to and just having this defeated view about it. I'm never going to have victory over those areas in my life. I just resign myself to the idea that I'm going to keep failing in those ways. Well, while we maybe would have every reason in our humanity to accept defeat because we don't have any strength for victory, as a believer, we have no reason to take on that posture when we've been made alive, we've been empowered by the Spirit of God, and and we've been told that all things are possible when the power of God is working in us. In our own strength, that's not true. Now, you say, well, what does this have to do with David, well, he understood that the focus of, of failure, the focus of even having or realizing sin in your life was to learn from that, to mature and to grow spiritually more dependent on God instead of to resigning yourself to sin. Now, that's not 
That's not something that even comes out of this overly clearly, but it's something I think we'll see with his, discuss his discussion about this phrase, anguish over sin. Let's take a look, if you're not there already, turn to Psalm 38. We'll kind of look at this and, and why. That's something that stood out to me in this chapter or this psalm, Psalm 38. Now, as I was looking, when I first went through Psalm 38, I kind of thought, hmm, there's really nothing here that's grabbing me or speaking to me in any way. I think I'll just move on to Psalm 39. And interestingly, I went on to Psalm 39. Then I read Psalm 39 and I thought, you know what? I don't know. There's nothing jumping out at me here in Psalm 39 either, really. So then I thought, do I really want to skip to Psalm 40? Which I've told you at the start of the series, we weren't necessarily going to do every psalm. So in a sense, that would have been perfectly fine. Except for I just felt like, man, you're just not, you're not having an open enough mind to this. You're, you're not, you're not approaching this with the right spirit or the right posture. I prayed about it then a little bit. And then I went back to Psalm 38. Now when I went back to Psalm 38, verse 18, for I will declare my iniquity, I will be in anguish over my sin, just leapt off the page at me. And I, and I read that and I thought, wow, that's not something that I've really, I've really seen before. And so then I started back at the beginning of Psalm 38. And we'll see, we'll see where we go here tonight. But the first part, as I sort of revisited Psalm 38, I looked at this idea that this is a psalm where, at least in my study Bible, it has this psalm labeled godly sorrow for sin. Now, I didn't know that at the time because the version I was looking at wasn't this study Bible. When I first read it, the Bible I was reading doesn't have any subtitles to it. Those aren't inspired subtitles, but they're just different study Bibles have different ways of breaking down passages and trying to give you a little bit of a, a summary maybe about what that chapter is about. And so I didn't, I didn't see that originally. I didn't see that till after I was finished with this message. But it's kind of interesting that that's the very first verse that came to my mind from the New Testament, and we'll get to it in a bit, when I read that verse 18, talking about godly sorrow working repentance, and we'll get to that in a bit. But godly sorrow for sin. But this first section is clearly about sin, David realizing that he has sin in his life, and he's facing the chastening of the Lord. Now, we're going to see that he believes as a result of the chastening of the Lord that he's actually experiencing physical sickness, though we'll touch on that in a second. The idea primarily being, I believe, that he's saying, I'm completely overwhelmed or overrun physically and spiritually, and that he's actually using these terms of physical sickness more in a figurative sense and less in a literal sense. Now, some take the perspective that that's a little different than that. But let's read this first section because in order to talk about sin, you have to recognize a few things in terms of God's understanding or God's view towards sin. We sometimes have a twisted view of sin and we minimize it. We don't really see it for what it is, for the damaging effects that it has in our lives. But let's read the first two verses here. Sin displeases God. Sin displeases God. O oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure, my Bible has an exclamation point there. For your arrows pierce me deep, deeply and your hand presses, down, presses me down. Now, that's a reference to sort of the chastening of God in response to sinfulness. But you start by saying, if God's going to discipline somebody for anything or chasten those that he loves his children as the Bible says that a, a father who loves his child will chasten his child not for the purpose of disciplining him or harming him but for the purpose of helping him to grow or to learn things or to have changed thinking so that he could have a change of a direction that would then be beneficial to him. Chastening, proper chastening from a loving father is never intended to have a detrimental effect. It's always intended to be beneficial to the child. And so as you think about why would God do that, it's because sin is not something that God is ever pleased with. And these couple of overarching principles about God and sin that I wanted to bring out, but the first is that sin is incompatible with God. It's incompatible with his very character. Turn to Psalm 92 verse 15, since we're in Psalms anyway. Psalm 92 15 have to turn a number of pages to your right. 
Because there's not the slightest bit of sin that's compatible with God. Because God is what? He's perfectly right. He's perfectly holy. So sin is incompatible with God. It says this in verse 15 of Psalm 92. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. There is no unrighteousness in him. This is talking about how God is holy and set apart because he's perfectly righteous. That's not something that we can relate to practically. We can now relate to that positionally because God sees us in a right standing with his son on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ having been imputed or credited to our account. So when God sees us as his children, he doesn't see us in our sin anymore. He sees us in the shoes or the righteousness of his son with which we've been clothed the moment moment of faith in Jesus Christ. And so in a sense, it's true that we are holy and set apart too positionally, but practically we can't relate to this. Because we're not perfect. We're still flawed. We still make mistakes. We still do do things that are opposed to what God says is right. And God calls those things simply sin. Now, a second general principle we should keep in mind here about how God is displeased with sin. God is not just turning an eye to sin. It's that sin could never please him. So it's incompatible with who God is. And it never could please him. Turn to Psalm 5. Psalm 5. We're still in Psalm, but some page turning here as we go back toward the beginning. Psalm 5, verse 4. And this is true positionally. This is also true practically as well. Sin could never please God, again, because it's incompatible with who God is. Verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Why? Because it's opposed to his very character. Nor shall evil dwell with you. Now, that's true, meaning in the sense that he can't be evil. But it's also true in the sense that we can't experience fellowship with God whilst we're in a position where we're identified with an attitude or a mindset of rebellion against him. While we're, we're living in, in sin, so in a sense, not so much the ac- external acts of sinning, but the mentality associated with sin, we can't be in a place of intimacy and dependence on God while at the same time we're resisting God and doing our own thing. That's true practically. Positionally, it's true that God can't have anything to do with sin. The only reason he can have anything to do with us is because we've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and our sin has been separated from us in a sense, nailed to a cross and cast as far as the east is from the west. We've been fully forgiven of our sin. Our sin has been atoned for meaning our sin has been paid for so that our sin isn't separating us from God in a positional sense anymore either. But sin is incompatible with God. Sin could never please him. And the next general principle I wanted to bring out as we're getting started with this anguish over sin study tonight is that God doesn't overlook or look favorably on sin either. So it doesn't please him and he doesn't overlook it or look favorably on sin either. Now, I'm just going to read this one to you, Habakkuk 1.13a. This is the first part of this verse. It says this about God. You are pure, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Now that's a little bit cryptic, but what he's really saying is you are too holy to tolerate wrongdoing or look favorably on evil. God cannot overlook or look favorably on sin. He's too holy for that. It's incompatible with his very character. He can't look favorably on evil. He can't tolerate wrongdoing. God's just character demands that there's penalty or payment being made for sinfulness or for wrongdoing. Now, we understand that the payment that was owed as a result of sin was separation, eternal separation, or spiritual death. Now, the Bible explains from the very first pages through the very end this idea that man found himself estranged from God, deserving of death, standing judged, in a sense, standing guilty before a holy God and deserving to spend an eternity that way. And then the whole, the whole storyline of the Bible, in fact, is about how God in his grace could redeem or restore or reconcile or rescue those that were estranged from him on, as a result of their sin. And the plan of rescue that God put into place following the fall of man into sin, again in the very early chapters of Genesis. 
And so as you're thinking about this, you are too holy to tolerate wrongdoing or look favorably on sin. That's God's perspective as it relates to sin. It, it displeases him. Now, David here is describing himself as being chastened as a result of displeasing God due to sin in his life. So if we turn back to Psalm 38, you see, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, now catch this, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. What is he talking about? The general principle that we just brought out, that God is never pleased by sin, and God cannot just ignore or overlook sin. It causes a real problem. It causes, in the, in the case of the believer, the child of God, it causes this break down in that relational intimacy that the believer was having with God, but now has had sin get in the way of that. And in the case of the unbeliever, the unbeliever still remains under God's wrath because he has not believed in the work of Jesus Christ, in God's provision to deal with his sinfulness. If you're coming back to the Old Testament where Christ is not known yet specifically in terms of the details exactly of what God's future permanent provision was going to be for man's sin. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was not clearly in view. But still, man had to come to a place of seeing his need, recognizing that God alone could undertake to make a way to provide for the consequences or the debt that was owed because of man's sinfulness, and that apart from man, God would have to intervene to make a way for man to be made right with God or put in a right standing with God on the basis of what God could do for sinful man, not on the basis of what man could do for God. They had to understand that, and that's true that's the only way anyone could ever have been justified was to be justified by faith responding to what God said was true. Faith is just believing what God says he will do. Believing that and then responding in faith to that. So as we're thinking about David, he understands that there's a problem here and it's causing chastening in his life. Chastening is another word for divine discipline. God is, in David's mind, God sees God, David sees God in his mind, he sees God as disciplining him as a result of his own sinfulness, his own failures in his life in terms of sin. Now, the second part here is resisting God. It's never beneficial, and it never produces joy. It's never beneficial, and it never produces joy because David is now going to describe the impact that sin has had on his life, and he's going to describe the impact that God's chastening or discipline has had on his life, and he's going to do it in very vivid detail. Now, because this is written poetically, David could be speaking literally to describe actual bodily sickness that he's experiencing in his life, physically and spiritually, or he could be speaking figuratively to describe a general sense of complete physical and emotional distress brought on by or as a consequence of his own sinfulness. Now, I lean toward the figurative view because this is poetry. Poetry is, by definition, incorporating figurative or symbolic language, oftentimes to convey some type of a point, metaphors and symbolism and figures of speech. And so that's where I lean, but it's no, no problem one way or the other how you lean with this. Let's look at some of these phrases that David uses to describe this complete physical and emotional distress that he's in as a result of the consequences of sin. The first one you see here is, there is no soundness in my flesh, start at verse three. Because of your anger, anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. He's not confused about what's bringing this about in his life. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. He's not blaming somebody else. He understands how he got to where he got. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. It's a pretty descriptive language. Does that sound like a, place in, a pleasant place to be? Does this sound like somebody who is really thriving right now? No, this sounds like a, a place, a, a description of somebody who is in distress. Somebody who is at the end of their rope. And you think about these, these descriptions here. If this is literal, and that as you see that phrase, 
there is no soundness in my flesh. You see the phrase, nor any health in my bones. If that's talking about physical sickness, for my loins are full of inflammation. Whose loins are full of inflammation tonight? (laughs) Sometimes it feels like every joint in my body, right? And so that's why we take the ibuprofen, right? To, to, to knock down the inflammation. But what a way of describing being in physical distress, being even ill. I am feeble and severely broken. Now you think of the sort of the more the spiritual or emotional side of it where he says, I am troubled. That's a ment- sort of a mental side of it. I am bowed down greatly. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. This is, this is great language. I think he's just, again, speaking of this overall general sense of being completely broke down physically and emotionally broken down and and in distress. But you could take, you know, you think about this, can God chasten his children through physical trials? Can God do that? And the answer is yes, he can. There can be detrimental physical consequences associated with sin. Let me say that again. There can be detrimental physical consequences associated with sin. Now, I guess I'm of the, a personal opinion that that's not that frequent. You may have a differing view of that, but the idea that God as a form of chastening is bringing about physical illness in our lives, I just don't see that as something that is pervasive in the, in the text of Scripture. Is there other examples of it, though? Yes, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, many of you will know this is in the context of the Lord's Supper being abused, and people turning the Lord's Supper into a way to gain prominence for themselves, into a way to even lord their wealth over other people, in a way where their motives are the furthest thing from, from pure. They're not, they're, not being, they're not honoring the Lord and celebrating his death until he comes. They're not doing that with sincerity or authenticity. That's the context of what's happening. But if we turn to chapter 11, verse 29... And then we'll get into verse 30. It says this. For he who eats and drinks, now we're talking about the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy manner. Now, what was that unworthy manner? Well, they were going about turning the Lord's Supper as a time to, again, flaunt their wealth, get drunk, have an elaborate meal while others had nothing to eat. They, were, they had turned it into a circus. That's what was happening. So he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Verse 30. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. Now, perhaps there's disagreement of this about this. I've never actually studied this particular passage in great detail, but my understanding is that most people take that to be a reference to physical sickness and premature, prematurely being taken home to be with the Lord. So is that a potential judgment or discipline that the Lord could utilize in a believer's life is physical sickness? Yes. Many people take Psalm 38 here to be talking about that. Some are speculating up and down about what kinds of physical ailments God might have brought about as a form of discipline in David's life. I don't, I don't see that. I, I don't take it that way. Again, it, if that's your take on it, I don't think it necessarily changes the overall point or the view of this. I think he's just describing this. He's using poetic language to describe being completely at the end of himself, to be completely broken down and in a place of physical and emotional and, and frankly, spiritual distress, although he's turned back to the Lord here, and so he's, he should be in a good place in terms of the spiritual side of it. But that's at least a passage to consider about could this be true? Um, Some say, well, he's got leprosy here or he's got this or that or the other thing. I don't know, I'll leave that that conclusion to you. But the takeaway here is that the burden of sin is often overwhelming and crushing. I think that's a much more important takeaway as he's using all of these very descriptive phrases is the burden of sin is often overwhelming and crushing. And you see that especially in verse 4 where he says, my iniquities have gone over my head. Now what he means there is that they've, they've flooded me. 
meaning I'm drowning. They're drowning me. My iniquities are drowning me. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. And I think there's just, that's, that, that ought to be the sense that you have. And I think God, by giving you a conscience in the church age here, by giving you his spirit to live inside of you that has one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of our sin. That's actually a ministry of the Holy Spirit, even in unbelievers, to convict all men of sin. But in any event, that's, that's something the Holy Spirit is working to do in our lives. Now, can that feel like quite a, quite a burden? Can that have the perspective of being overwhelming and crushing? And I think the answer is yes. And that's what David is describing here. Now, the takeaway ought to be, though, not to focus in on any of these descriptive, this descriptive language, but to focus in on the idea that there is no joy, there is no peace, there is no rest when you're resisting the Lord. There's no joy, there's no peace, there's no rest when you're resisting the Lord. And so the, the overall point that I started with on this section here is resisting God, it's never beneficial and it never produces joy. That's an important takeaway here as we look at, at this psalm about godly sorrow for sin. So then we move to this next section here. I have it labeled, the end of yourself is where healing and restoration begins. The end of yourself is where healing and restoration begins. Let's pick up in verse nine. Lord, after describing all of this being downtrodden and wiped out in a sense due to sin in one's life, the consequences of that sin, and what a burden that is as you think about the distress that that it can even leave you in. Verse nine, he says, Lord, all my desire is before you. And my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants, my strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. It has also gone from me. Pretty, pretty descriptive language there too. You see, the end of yourself is where healing and restoration begins. David had to get to a place where he was going to be honest with himself and honest with the Lord. See, honesty and transparency, they're critical. He says this, all my desire is before you, meaning I've laid myself bare before you, Lord. You understand what my desire was and perhaps what my desire is if David's speaking from a place of having changed thinking, which I believe he is as he writes this psalm. I had been in this one place where you were fully aware of what I had done, what I was thinking, how, how I had gone off the rails, how, I'd, how I had sinned against you, God. You're aware of that. You're now also, though, aware of my current desire. My sighing is not hidden from you. You see that I'm feeling the weight of this chastening that I'm experiencing. He views this as chastening from the Lord. I will say this, that doesn't mean he's necessarily right. He's sharing his perspective he believes that he's facing all of these consequences in his life as a result of the chastening of the Lord. But friends, is every time we're facing hard things in our life as a result of our sin, is that always a direct reflection of the chastening of the Lord? And the answer is no, not directly. Sin has consequences. Sin has fallout associated with it. We have to reap what we sow at times. The Lord allows that and uses that. In a sense, it's maybe a form of correction, but it's not even something that God is affirmatively doing or proactively even doing. So sometimes does he proactively chasten us and discipline us, bring about the actual trials and hardships that we're facing as a result of our sin? I think the answer is yes, but we're facing plenty of that just as a result of the natural consequences of our own poor choices. And so, in any event, he has this idea that my sign is not hidden from you. You know what I'm going through right now. Now, if you're going to go through and be healed and be restored to the Lord, it involves giving up. It involves you stopping the resistance, dis not continuing to fight and resist the Lord. You see that especially in verse 10, the first part of it, where he says, my strength fails me. Like, you are aware of my current thinking, my desire, it's, it's laid bare in front of you, Lord. I'm at the end of myself. You hear my sighing. You know that I'm suffering here. My strength fails me. I'm not, 
I'm not leaning on my own strength anymore here, Lord. I'm not fighting you anymore, Lord. And that mentality of my strength fails me. Say that to yourself here right now. My strength fails me. I wasn't like joking, like actually, my strength fails me. That's a fact, friends. And there's at every phase of the Christian life, every phase of salvation, you have to understand that. My strength fails me. I'm not walking in dependence on my own strength. I'm not leaning on my own strength. I have, in order to be healed and restored with the Lord, I have to see this, that my strength fails me. Now, think about first tense salvation or salvation from sin's penalty. Does Romans 5, 6 come to mind maybe? For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Those who had no strength. Now David isn't coming at it from a first tense perspective. He's coming at it from a progressive sanctification or practical sanctification, a Christian living perspective. But he's saying he had to get to a place where he could say, my strength fails me. Write that down. If you forget that, you're going to be wallowing in life because it's not through your strength that you can live a life that would please the Lord. So then what's the last part of this? Admit that you are helpless without him. Admit that you're helpless without him. The end of yourself is where healing and restoration begins. Read the last part of verse 10. The light of my eyes has gone from me. Now I summarize that a little bit, but the light of my eyes has gone from me. This is referring to a complete physical and emotional and in a sense spiritual distress or how would I how else could you say it? Coming to the end of yourself. I'm I'm completely at the end of myself. And so we have that language. The light of my eyes has gone from me. That's very poetic language of I've, there's nothing left. There's no resistance left in me. I have no other response left here other than just collapsing into your arms and resting in you and asking for you to undertake in my life to restore me and heal me and encourage me and strengthen me and empower me. Now, all those things were true and available all along. We just hadn't been appropriating them. And we can't until we can come to a place where it's not I, but it's Christ. It's death to self and it's life in Christ on a practical level, not just on a positional level, on a practical daily experiential level. So then we see this next section here. The fallout of sin extends to relationships with others. The fallout of sin extends to relationships with others, reading, picking up in verse 11. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. And my relatives stand afar off. Now some say, see, he had leprosy. <laughs> I don't think that's what it, I think it's figurative. I don't think that's what he's talking about. Verse 12, those who seek my life, now we're talking about his enemies, they get in on this too. They lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long, but I, like a deaf man, do not hear, and I, like a mute who does not open his mouth, thus I am like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth is no response. The fallout of sin extends to relationships with others. Now, it includes our loved ones and friends. What does it say about them? They stand aloof from my plague, and they stand afar off. These are my relatives. These are my loved ones. These are my friends that this is said to be true of. The fallout of sin extends to relationships with others. Now you say, in what sense might that be true? Well, oftentimes when we're sinning, we're doing things that are self-focused and self-centered. Who do we end up sinning against? Well, first and foremost, God. That's always who we're sinning against. But on a practical human level, who does it end up being a sin against? Oftentimes the people who are closest to us. Isn't that sad? Too often that's true. It's not, we're not sinning generally uh, against the government, though we could be. It, we're not first and foremost as a rule, most often sinning against strangers, though we could be. We're not first and foremost sinning against people we've never known. 
oftentimes we're sinning against the people that are closest to us. And so what is the result? The natural result is that oftentimes they pull back from that. Now that would maybe be a somewhat legitimate thing. They pull back from that, not necessarily by abandoning us per, per se, but saying, I'm not gonna associate with or get caught up in that while that's going on. I'm gonna distance myself from that thinking and that behavior while, while that's occurring. I'm gonna pray for you, I'm gonna seek to encourage you, but I'm not gonna let myself get sucked into that. Now that would be maybe a good way of thinking about that. A bad way about thinking about that would be that they're distancing themselves from you and they're sort of put off by you and they're maybe even embarrassed and ashamed of you. Uh, they're doing that because they're actually becoming judgmental. That they're actually not wanting to, in a sense, be associated with maybe some public sin that you have in your life. And so they treat you like you have leprosy or, or the, the plague. And because they, in a sense, are forgetting about the pit that they were dug from, forgetting about the own fi- their own failure in their own lives, oftentimes they are sort of even maybe grossed out to an extent by you because they look at the, th- the sin or failure in your life and they effectively want to be self-righteous about it. So they want to say, well, how could you? How could you? That's so gross. I can't believe you would do that. And the truth is we're all just a momentary decision away from anything in the catalog of sin, right? Every person is capable of the full catalog, though maybe we haven't had a certain hang-up be our kind of thing. I was thinking about that because there have been people in my lives that have acted in certain ways and I've kind of treated them like I'm ashamed to be associated with you. It wasn't always the godly reason for distancing myself from them. I was just actually operating in pride and self-righteousness. And God has put it on my heart that yes, it's true, we don't want to be associated with somebody's active sin, but let's just say the sin has already occurred. We're, we're, we're not to turn our back on sinners. If we did that, everyone would have to turn their back on us, and we'd have to turn our back on everyone. When a person has come to their senses, in a sense, we don't have to enable, we don't have to support, we don't even, we're, we're not to be associated with, with sin, in a sense, so there's, there's a place for having some separation. But when they've come to their senses, are we supposed to treat them like a pariah? Are we, are we supposed to be grossed out by them or not want to associate with them anymore? Or say, I don't want anything to do with them because they did this, that, or the other thing and never forget about that, never move on, never have real forgiveness in our heart? Now, we don't ever have to come to a place where we're celebrating their failure, right? The, the point isn't to celebrate failure, but the point is to be a reflection of God's grace and how gracious has God been with us. Well, he forgave us for one little thing that we did wrong. No. He forgiven us for everything we've ever done that was wrong. Well, he gave us a second chance three times. Is that right? No. He has an infinite amount of forgiveness towards us. He is always willing to reconcile with us. So there's a fine line sometimes where we don't want to necessarily, like I said, celebrate or endorse sin or not call sin sin or maybe not treat sin, take sin seriously or be sort of perceived to even be flippant about sin in somebody's lives. But it's not our job to continue to judge somebody or distance ourselves from them like they have the plague. Now, the second group of people here were said to be unbelievers or enemies. So that's what, how our friends might uh, speak towards us, or not speak towards us, but respond toward our sin. But how about our enemies? They're going to speak of destruction and they're going to plan deception in verse 12. You see, Satan would love nothing more than to use our failure to undermine the name of Jesus Christ even further to cause even more destruction in our lives, to cause us to become even further removed from somebody who that the Lord could effectively work in and work through. They want to use our failure against us too. And that was something that David was facing. As he was down, people were trying to take advantage of that. Now, was that all uh, 
figurative? No, it was probably actual. When, when he was down and he was out of it and he wasn't, he wasn't thriving, were other people trying to, as he was the king, use that to gain authority, gain power, gain influence, undermine his, his leadership? The answer is probably yes, that was happening. Now, what does he say, though, the best option is? So that's a lot of comments I've made about the person who's a friend or a loved one or a relative or an enemy and how they're sort of thinking about it. But how is the person who was the one who, who was sinning, the one who is, who is having the fallout from their own choices, how, how is that person supposed to think about those people acting that way? The person who feels like they are kind of a marked person now and people are avoiding them, people are treating them differently, people are treating them like a pariah, how are you supposed to respond if that's happening even to you in your life? Well, we see that here. The best option is to try to ignore it and not concern yourself with their response. Verse 14 says, I am like a man. I've made myself to be like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth is no response. God doesn't want you to try to fix their thinking or fix their behavior or convince them that they really should think more highly of you, that they should really be more forgiving toward you. That's not your role. It's not to argue with them or try to, or try to plead your cause with them. It's to be silent, to try to ignore it, to not listen to it, and to not try to speak out toward them. And I would say that generally speaking, oftentimes people when they've messed up and they, they've had failure in their life, oftentimes instead of focusing on how God wants to use that to mature them and help them to grow and help them to learn something about himself and about themselves, they're just focused on restoring their influence or restoring their reputation, restoring their friendships and restoring their connections to people or their, their areas of responsibility and uh, power or influence. They're not, they're not focused on the, the main thing, which is what God wants to show them and how he wants to grow them even through that circumstance. Now we come to this next section. Hope in times of despair is only found in the Lord. Hope in times of despair is only found in the Lord. Verse 15. For in you, O Lord, I hope. My hope isn't in trying to convince them to think about me differently or treat me differently. For in you, O Lord, I hope. You will hear, O Lord, my God. For I said, hear me, lest they rejoice over me, lest when my foot slips, they exalt themselves against me. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. See, hope in times of despair is only found in the Lord. In times of failure and chastening, God provides hope. We see that in the first part of 15 here, where he says, in you, in you, O Lord, I hope. Now that's in contrast to trying to find hope and healing in others. I find my hope in the Lord. See, God doesn't abandon believers due to sin, even though friends and family and loved ones, maybe they will. You see, it says, you will hear, O Lord, my God. You will hear, O Lord, my God. He doesn't abandon us. Now that does involve communicating with the Lord because it says, I said, meaning I talked to the Lord. I said, hear me. And then he tells him something. But it involves communicating with the Lord, finding hope, moving forward with the Lord. Now verse 17 communicates this idea that there is nowhere else to turn. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me, For is, is the end of verse 17 there, I almost kept reading. My sorrow is continually before me, and I am ready to fall. I have nowhere else to turn. See, in times of despair, I turn to the Lord, and in this case, even in the context of the fallout from my own sin. It's found in the Lord, turning back to him, fixing my gaze on him, finding my hope and my comfort and my strength and my peace and my purpose and my direction in him. Now we see verse 18 here. This is where our title for the sermon comes from. Acknowledging failure and being sensitive to the, harmful, the harmfulness of sin, it's critical. I have to acknowledge my failure and be sensitive to the harmfulness of sin. Verse 18, for I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. Now, I will declare my iniquity. That sounds very familiar. It sounds very similar to 1 John 1, 9, right? What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, if we acknowledge 
our sin. I declare, I will declare my iniquity. I'll acknowledge my sin. What does Proverbs 28, 13 say? He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. See, it's critical that we would acknowledge failure. We can't move forward until we can have honesty and acknowledge our failure. We also have to be sensitive to acknowledging the harmfulness of sin as far as what are the effects or the fallout of sin. So we see this phrase, I will be in anguish over my sin. That word translated as anguish refers to being worried, anxious, or concerned. Now in this context, I believe the proper term there to be applied would be concerned. I will be concerned over my sin. And the idea there is the believer who understands the detrimental effect of sin would be sensitive to its harmful impact on himself and others. It should bother you. This idea that we wouldn't be bothered by sin is a problem. I will be concerned over my sin. I will be in anguish over my sin. So when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, it was a pretty direct letter calling them out for a lot of failure that was going on in the church. So then he's now in 2 Corinthians talking about their response to that very direct letter of sort of chastening them or challenging them. So he says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, meaning I was, I was torn about writing such a harsh letter. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Meaning that you weren't made sad or sorry for nothing. It, it actually accomplished the intended purpose. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Now that's present tense salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world that sorrow without changed thinking. It produces death. It lacks any spiritual benefit. That's what he's getting at here. But come back to this, this main idea about, I rejoice that your sorrow led to repentance. That godly sorrow produces repentance. That's the idea. So when you're thinking about the benefit or the value of anguishing over sin, that's ma the main idea, that you would be concerned about sin, but not just concerned about sin in the sense of fixating on your sin, concerned about sin in the sense that it would have the beneficial outcome of changing your thinking. See, the biggest difference between godly and worldly sorrow is what causes it. See, godly sorrow is caused by rec recognizing thinking and behavior that is contrary to God's will, for the believer's life. Behavior that is detrimental to one's spiritual well-being, behavior and thinking. Uh, thinking and behavior that's harmful to others. See, I'm, I have this sense of sorrow or concern about sin because I'm focused on God. It's God-centered. I'm focused on the effects that this is having on my relationship with Him and the impact that it's having on my testimony, the impact that it's having on others, and I actually do feel a sense of remorse or sorrow about that. See, worldly grief, by contrast, is caused by the loss or denial of something we want for ourselves. We're only sad that we got caught or that we didn't get what we wanted. It's very self-centered. But godly sorrow ha is caused by having the sensitivity to how that sin is impacting and affecting our relationship with the Lord and His plan and purpose for our lives. I'm actually bothered by it, is the idea. Now, the second primary difference involves results. Godly sorrow is eternally and spiritually productive because it produces changed or corrected thinking. Worldly sorrow only produces bitterness, despondency, and despair. That's not the kind of sorrow that God's after. He's talking about having anguish for sin, though, here, just like he is, it's mimicked here in 2 Corinthians 7, having sorrow the focus of it is it's productive and it's useful because I'm not becoming just desensitized to sin or flippant about sin. I actually have a sense of regret. I have a sense of this is sadness that I'm feeling 
because while I'm rejecting God and rebelling against Him, I'm missing out on the abundant life. I'm missing out on God's use for me in my life. Now, the takeaway from this is, is not I should be dwelling on my sin. It's that I should not get to a point where I'm flippant or desensitized or jaded to sin. That's a real problem in the believer's life. God doesn't want us to get to that point. He wants us to have godly sorrow. He wants us to have anguish over sin, but specifically how it interferes with our relationship with him and his plan and purpose for our lives. He doesn't want us going around feeling bad about our sin. That's not the point. The point is he does want us to actually have some sense of, man, that is not good. That is, I, I feel terrible that I've been wasting that time in vanity and pride, rebelling and living life in a way that can't please you, in opposition to you. And so that's something that just jumps off the page. Now we finish really quickly here. The last part of this is the fallout of sin often must be weathered despite corrected thinking. It doesn't mean all of the fallout just goes away. Verse 19, but my enemies are vigorous and they are strong and those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those also who render evil for good, they are my adversaries because I follow what is good. Just because I've had changed thinking doesn't mean all of my problems go away. There still might be a fallout due to sin or there might be a fallout due to my changed thinking. In this context, I actually think he's talking about now that I'm following what is good, I'm gonna face a re-energized attack. The attack previously had been associated with my failure. Now the attack is gonna be focused on my enjoying the Lord. You see, you can face criticism and attacks for people who are condemning you or judging you because of your sin. You can face the same exact behavior by people who are criticizing, condemning you, and judging you because you're actually enjoying the Lord and walking by faith and they don't like it because they're not doing the same thing. Now the last two verses involve the path forward. It involves depending on and looking to the Lord for help. This is always the solution. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. The idea here as he ends this section is, I, this whole psalm is, I'm still suffering, but I'm crying out to you, Lord. I'm still suffering, but I'm crying out to you. And God is always faithful to carry you through. His mercy and grace are ever present and abundant. That's something that we, we can take to the bank. We know that's a fixed fact. And so even though there's this sense of acknowledging our sin, even though there's this sense that sin has consequences, sin displeases God, it's never beneficial in our lives, we have to come to the end of ourselves. It affects, there's fallout associated with sin. It, affects, it extends to relationships that we have with others. The only hope that we're going to find as we're going through the fallout of sin, the only hope that we're going to find is in the Lord. And when we acknowledge our failure and we're sensitive to the harmful effects that, of, that sin has, we can actually move forward. God can use that in our lives. We're still going to maybe have to weather some of the trials that we've brought upon ourselves or that are connected with our sinfulness, but the path forward always involves depending on the Lord and looking to the Lord for help. So I'm still suffering, but I know that you're faithful. I know that your grace and mercy are ever-present, and they're always more than I need. So you think about anguish for sin. I don't know if that phrase strikes you as interesting, anguish for sin. But sin isn't the focus. See, sin isn't, to a sense, again, it's an unavoidable part of life on this side of glory. It has devastating effects on our lives and those around us. And God has made it possible for us to have practical victory over sin. But in order for that to happen, we can't get to the place where we're treating sin with sort of a desensitized and flippant attitude. We need to avoid that mindset where we still, when we see that we have fallen into sin again or we've made the wrong, we've had the wrong thinking which led to the wrong behaviors, that we would actually have godly sorrow in a sense or we would actually uh, have that anguish over sin in our lives because we would see just how damaging it is. And so then when failure happens, the focus, it needs to be on how can that sin or that failure be used in my life to grow and to mature spiritually. And I don't think we do that often enough where we just try to move on from it, but we don't ever learn anything from it. And how are we gonna learn anything from it? Well, it ultimately enjoys, it ultimately involves learning to enjoy him, turn back to him, see the value of that restored relationship with him, trusting him more so that we could maybe even avoid those similar pitfalls in the future, but then allow him to actually work in our thinking 
that it could lead to, that sorrow or that anguish would actually cause change of thinking, that repentance, of course, metanoia, meaning changed thinking, that we'd have changed thinking and we would learn something, that we wouldn't just keep doing the same things over and over again. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could spend in your word. Thank you for these reminders. Pray that we wouldn't have a desensitization to sin, that we would see how destructive it really is, that we would see that you don't want our lives to be lives that are just filled with defeatism or sort of abandoning ourselves to the idea that we're just gonna be consistently failing, but that we would actually see the victory that's available in you and that we would be walking with our eyes and our gaze fixed on you, trusting you, depending on you so that you can lead us along, lead us in a path of righteousness, lead us in the right paths, make our paths straight, that you could cut, cut straight or cut straight or lead our paths in ways that would please you. Pray that we would see that that's always automatically true every time we're enjoying you and we're resting in you and we're trusting you. So pray that we could do